1801-1816 is the item number on this one. And the nice thing about these practice katanas, oh, oh, that hurt. Oh, that hurt big time. A piece of that just, the tip just got me, Odell. Oh, that got me good. You all right? A piece of that tip just got me. Oh, Folks, right now, we uh, may need emergency surgery in the studio. I just love those. I don't know if you do. <laughs> hey, we are so glad that you're here with us today, especially if you're a guest, if it's your first time, maybe first time in a long time. We are so thrilled that you've taken some time out of your weekend to be with us here at Crossroads. One thing we care most about around here is that regardless of where you come from, whatever your story may be, that you feel welcome here and that you uh, potentially in the future could call this place home. Now, before we get started, uh, we are a little over a month away from Easter weekend. This is something that we're really excited about here at Crossroads. Uh, Easter is going to be April 16th, and uh, on this campus, we're going to have six different services on that weekend. We're going to have two on Saturday and four on Sunday. Now, as you came in here a minute ago, you may have noticed some cards on the end of your rows. If you would, go ahead and pass those on down the row. We want you to take as many of these cards with you today as possible, all right? Now, the purpose of these cards isn't for it to, you know, be hung on your refrigerator or for it to be a bookmark, okay? No, we want you to give these cards out to people in your life who don't have a church home, who may be close to you but a little bit far from God, all right? And begin praying and inviting uh, people in your life to uh, attend Easter with you. This place is a really intimidating place if you've never been here before. And so uh, offer to either meet them here or come with them to the service of their choice. And if you choose to leave one of these cards on the table at a restaurant where you eat, just make sure you weren't some high demanding jerk for the previous hour beforehand to your waiter or waitress, okay? Begin praying and inviting people and uh, know that God is going to show up in a big way on that weekend. A simple invitation really has the potential to change someone's life uh, in eternity. And we're excited about you being a part of what God is going to do on that weekend uh, just over a month away. Now today what we're going to do is we're going to pick back up where we left off last week as we have been walking through this book in scripture called 1 Corinthians. And if you've been with us for the past few weeks or months, you, you know that, that 1 Corinthians was really a letter written to a church in the first century and this, this church was struggling. And this letter was written by the founding pastor, a guy by the name of Paul. And, and after he established this church, he really realized the depth of brokenness among these men and women. I mean, it was a really messy and dysfunctional uh, church. Now, here's the thing. One thing we've learned is that their behavior, it wasn't really the issue. I mean, what they were doing wasn't so much a big deal, but what Paul was getting at and, and what he kept trying to drive home with the Corinthians is, is why they were doing it. Now, just like us today, these men and women had certain desires that would surface inside them and, and they didn't know what to do with them. And, and so these desires were leading them to blow up some of the most important parts of their life. Now, our desires aren't necessarily evil and they aren't necessarily good either. All of our desires are, are neutral at the beginning. And, and so the question for us that we really have to ask ourselves is not what kind of desires do we have, 
But the question is this, what, what do we allow our desires to do? How much influence do they really have over us? Several years ago, I went camping with some uh, high school buddies of mine and it was Memorial Day weekend and the sun was setting. We decided to get a fire lit and, and it had rained earlier that day. So we had some trouble getting the logs burning and, and we tried for several minutes when all of a sudden a good friend of mine, Grant said, hey, I've got some lighter fluid. Why don't I just soak up the logs in it and we'll light it that way. Great idea, all right. So he went, got the lighter fluid, poured it all over the fire pit, threw a match down, poof, it lit. We had a fire in no time, it was awesome. Well, a couple minutes later, my curiosity kind of got the best of me and I wondered what it would be like to see a stream of fire going through the air, kind of a thin line of fire, right? And so I said, hey, Graham, would you give me that bottle of lighter fluid? I held the bottle of lighter fluid in one hand. I had him strike a match in the other and had, I had him hold the match. This was so stupid, all right? I had him hold the match right up to the nozzle where the fluid was coming out. And, and as it was doing that, it exceeded my expectations. I mean, there was fire just going. I mean, I was just having so much fun with it. I was writing letters with it and, and it, was, it was awesome. Well, the next thing I knew, I looked down and the fire wasn't so much going that way. It was kind of creeping up closer and closer to the bottle. The next thing I knew, it just blew up right in front of me. I dropped the bottle and all of a sudden the fluid went everywhere and it began catching the grass and the shrubs. And, and I mean, everything was catching on fire. So I panicked, I freaked out, I didn't know what to do. And so Grant kind of stepped in and he said, hey bro, I got this. The next thing I remember, Grant kind of took a step back and lighter fluid was right there. And as if he was about to like score a goal in soccer, he then charged at the lighter fluid that was a flaming inferno at this point. And he decided to kick the bottle of lighter fluid in hopes that it would land inside the fire pit. But that's not really what happened at all. Not only did he overshoot the fire pit, but as that bottle of fluid went soaring into the air, drips of fluid started going everywhere. And the next thing I knew, our entire campsite was on fire. I mean, what in the world was going on? I thought we were gonna be in jail because we've caused this big forest fire in the middle of, of, of Kentucky. And so we ran down to the lake where we were camping and, and we immediately got a gallon of water and we just started pouring water everywhere, all over our tents, all over our stuff. And, and in a matter of moments, the fire was out, everything was smoky, but we had things under control and, and we just kind of both looked at each other and didn't say anything. We were really relieved. And then I said to Grant, I mean, how could you be so stupid to kick that bottle of lighter fluid? I mean, what kind of idiot would do that? Now, I want you to imagine that, that our desires are, are kind of like a bottle of lighter fluid, all right? Now, in its right context, when we understand how they work, it can be a really good thing, right? It can lead to a lot of fulfillment and satisfaction on our part, but, but, the moment we don't understand how our desires work and we lack control over them, that's the moment when we have the potential to blow up some of the most important parts of our life. It can lead to a lot of ruined destruction. And the next thing we know, we look around and, and our whole life is smoking because everything's been torched in flames. And for a lot of us, that, that's our story, right? 
Maybe as you look back on your past, you had that moment where, where you made that decision. It became obvious to those around you. And you thought, I, I never intended to do that. I never thought my life would end up in that place. And, and you heard things from people like, I'm so disappointed in you. I, I didn't think you were capable of doing something like that. Why does that happen? Well, that happens when we, when we don't really understand how our desires work. And, and the next thing we know, we're in this place that we never wanted to be to begin with. And so this is how... Paul kind of turns the discussion here as, as he begins talking about how to properly understand the desires that, that we have. And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a black Bible right in front of you. Uh, if you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it should be right on that table as you came in a moment ago. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, that consider that a, a gift from us to you. Feel free to take it home with you when you leave here today. All right? And we're going to be in chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 1. And, and you will notice that when we uh, start reading our text that, that Paul kind of takes a step backwards and, and, and gives the Corinthians a history lesson here. And I'm going to explain it, but, but take a look at what Paul says. First six verses of chapter 10. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the, same, from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, Paul says, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And so right here, Paul shifts the discussion to looking backwards when God delivered the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. Now the Jews had these had miserable lives as slaves under the Egyptian rule. They were slaves under, under Pharaoh at the time and, and we're told that God heard their crying. He knew that they were suffering and, and so he promised to rescue them from this, from this chapter of their life. And so he selected a man by the name of Moses to free them and to lead them to the promised land, which basically was God's way of saying that, that this will be a better way for you to live. That This is where you will experience freedom and, and the life that I intend for you to experience. But you see, deliverance didn't happen overnight. And while God led them out of Egypt, he allowed the Jews to camp and, and wander around in the wilderness for about 40 years before they entered this new land. Now, this sent a lot of mixed signals to the Jewish people during this time because life in the desert, it wasn't easy. It was difficult. It was hard. They had a lot of questions. I mean, each day when they woke up, it was really unpredictable. I mean, the longer the... The longer they camped out in the wilderness, the angrier they became, the more their anger built up. And, and some things never change though, right? I mean, have you ever been camping before and not gotten into an argument with somebody? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine camping for 40 years though? Can you imagine if you camped with me for 40 years? <laughs> Probably wouldn't make it. And so God made absolutely no sense to the Israelites at this point. And so many of them, what they decided to do was turn their backs on God because they thought that he didn't care. They thought that he had overlooked them. You ever had that moment before? I mean, you ever been so disappointed in, in God that you just wondered, does he even hear you? Does he even notice? Does he even care what you're going through? 
Notice in verse 6 how uh, Paul said that the way the Jews responded during this time, it, it occurred to us as an example to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So in other words, this is an example for us to not follow, Paul says. Why, why is that? Well, after the Israelites had been in the desert for a while, God met with Moses, their leader, for about 40 days on top of a mountain. Now, this is when Moses was given the Ten Commandments, and this is also when he reassured Moses that that he would be with them, and that regardless of their circumstances, he he was going to keep all of his promises. But ironically, as God pledged his faithfulness to his people, the Jews had had enough of the wilderness. They had enough of of wandering around. And so as this meeting was happening, they decided to to make their own idols. They, they, They made their own gods to worship. Now, we learn something really significant from this moment in their life. And and it goes like this, that we discover what we worship when we're tested. We discover what we worship when we're tested. Now, we have the advantage of, of looking back and having some perspective. And, and we might look at this chapter of the Israelites' life and think, man, how stupid of you guys. Why in the world would you think that creating a golden calf would sustain you and, and that that was better than what God could ultimately provide? And, and we think that, that is so stupid, right? And yet we struggle with this as well. We have our own way of struggling with idolatry and worshiping things other than God. Now, idolatry is, is anything that we are turning to other than God. Now, it's important for us to realize that, that the idolatry of the Israelites, it, it wasn't something that caught God off guard. I mean, he wasn't surprised by this. When they made this golden calf and they started bowing down and worshiping it, God didn't convene a big meeting up in heaven and say, all right, who saw this one coming? I mean, had I known they were going to make this idol, I never would have delivered them from Egypt. Who saw it coming? No, God didn't. God God wasn't surprised by it. He knew that was going to happen. You see, one of the most dangerous things about idolatry in our lives is believing that we aren't guilty of it, is thinking that we are innocent. It's that stuff, it's that relationship that that we think, man, I I can't live without that. I I need that in my life in order to feel significant or fulfilled. And so what Paul does in our text is he parallels the idolatry of the Israelites with the idolatry that the Corinthians were facing in their life. And so the next thing that Paul discussed in our text is temptation. In a way, our temptations have a way of revealing the idol that we're seeking to glorify. Check out what Paul says, verse 12. He says, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to mankind. In other words, what you're faced with right now, there have been plenty others who have struggled with the same thing. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And so temptation is kind of the way that our idols speak to us. They deceive us. That's why when we do something wrong, it can feel so right for us, right? This past week, I was flying through Dallas, and I was getting a connecting flight that was in a different terminal. And if you've ever been to the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, it's a massive airport. And so to get from one terminal to the next, you have to take one of those train shuttles, all right? Now, whenever I ride on one of those train shuttles, I always just play a little game with myself to see if I can remain standing up straight without holding one of those handlebars and without having to separate my feet like this, all right? And so on Wednesday, when I stepped into the shuttle, I 
stood like this and I tried standing up straight, but as soon as that thing took off, <laughs> I went flying forward into some older lady who didn't even speak Spanish and well, it was a really awkward moment, you know. Now here's the thing, that I've never been able to, to successfully stand up when those shuttles take off. I knew that was gonna happen. I stepped onto that train realizing I, I'm gonna fail, I'm gonna, I'm gonna embarrass myself here. And, and yet for some reason, I kept doing it thinking this is gonna be the time when I will nail it. This is, I'm gonna be successful this time. Now the weird thing about temptation and the upside down thing about temptation goes like this. That according to what Paul says, when we think we're strongest, we're really weakest. When we think that we're able to stand up, that, that's really when we're the most vulnerable. And so, what does that look like for us in our life? Now, it might seem really appropriate right now to talk about some really practical ways that we can avoid temptation and, and how we deal with some of these desires that we face every single day. But you see, saying no to sin is more than just doing what's right. There's a bigger issue at play. And, and the risk we run when, when getting overly practical is we really miss out on the bigger issue, the motivation behind everything. And maybe this is why we read this in chapter Verse 14 of chapter 10, Paul says this, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Now, just a little side note here. Whenever you see therefore in Scripture, you always have to ask yourself, what is it there for? I know I'm smart. All right. That one's free. Okay. So why is it there for? Well, this was Paul's way of saying, hey, basically everything that I just told you, everything that I just said, it all comes down to this. Don't miss out on what I'm about to tell you. If you don't hear anything else, don't miss what I'm about to say. Now, now the easier thing for Paul to have said right here would have been flee from temptation or run away from sin or, or learn how to have influence over your desires, but, but that's not what he says. He says, flee from idolatry. And if we're honest, that's a little bit confusing. That's a little bit buzzy. I mean, what, what does that even mean? It's not real clear, but here's the thing. Idolatry is the base, base issue. You see, what we worship is where we find our significance. Idolatry is the foundation where all of our sin originates. One church leader hundreds of years ago, a guy by the name of Martin Luther once said that it is impossible for us to break any of the Ten Commandments without first breaking number one, which goes like this, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You see, our idols are dangerous because we give them power to define us. And one of the most common word pictures for sin all throughout the Bible it goes like this, to miss the mark. It was actually an archery term. And so sin literally means to, to miss the mark. Therefore, sin always follows when we miss the mark on who we think we are, when we miss the mark on our identity. Let me say it like this, that you and I, we're only as strong as who we think we are. We're only as strong as, as who we think we are. Giving in to temptation happens when we're confused about where our value and worth comes from. Now, what's interesting is that we have no record of Jesus facing temptation in his life until, until his identity had been declared. Right after Jesus was baptized, God said from heaven to everyone who was there that day, hey, hey this is my son. He is who he says he is. He, he's sent from me. He is the one that I've been talking about for thousands and thousands of years. He is me. He is God. And that validated the identity of Christ. And so almost immediately, Matthew, a biographer on the life of Jesus, tells us that, that Jesus then went into the wilderness, the desert, for about 40 days where he went to battle and, and he fasted during that time. 
And so there in the wilderness, Satan met him so that he could tempt him. And I want you to take a look at how this encounter happened. Satan approaches Jesus and here's what he says. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now realize that, that Satan, he didn't begin tempting Jesus by first identifying his desire. He didn't say, Jesus, you, you are hungry. I mean, he had to be starving at this point. He had been without food for 40 days. Can you imagine that? But that's not how he started. No, Satan began by getting Jesus or attempting to get Jesus to doubt his identity if you are the son of God. And so here's the thing. Sin happens for us when we think more or less of ourselves. I mean, for followers of Jesus, sin is the disconnect between our behavior and our identity. A good question that we might ask ourselves goes like this. How can I avoid sin? But a better question that we need to ask goes like this. What false identities do our idols whisper to us that eventually result in sin? What are some of these false identities that, that we tend to believe? Well, the first one goes like this. I am what others think about me. I am what others think about me. When approval or popularity is all that we live for, we will do anything to be liked or to be accepted or to get attention. Now, the problem with any idol, especially when it's approval that we're living for, I mean, it's never enough. We've never arrived. And so we take our desires to be satisfied basically in places that ultimately can't fulfill us and will leave us only emptier. Author C.S. Lewis wrote in his famous book, Mere Christianity, he said, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do not want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or we first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I mean, that's just true. You see, when we convince ourselves that our worth and value depends on how much people love us, we're really not ourselves. This is when we, we feel pressure to impress somebody by maybe name dropping so that we'll be respected. This may be why you feel you always need to be right in a meeting or you can't ever lose an argument with your spouse. Sometimes we lack disciplining our children because we fear that, that they might grow up to resent us or, or reject us. Yet when we think we are what we do, we constantly look for ways to be validated. One professor named Dan Early uh, did a study and realized that there are only two motivations that every person has in life. The first motivation, this isn't going to be any surprise to you, by the way. The first motivation is that, that we want for circumstances to turn out in our favor. In other words, we, we want to uh, achieve. We, we want something to benefit us. We want comfort. And, and so in this study, he realized that we have this unique ability to do whatever it takes to get whatever it is that we want. We will even lie, cheat, or maybe even deceive people so that something can turn out to our, in our favor and to our advantage. Now, the second motivation that he realized every person has goes like this. We want to be loved, admired, and honored, and respected by people in our life. Now, those two are completely contradictory to one another, right? I mean, how is it that, that you can basically do whatever it takes and even cross boundaries and even lie, cheat, and deceive, yet at the same time, 
maintain this appearance of being respectable and, and honorable. Now, as a professor, one example that he gave was that every single year around the same exact time, he has just a, a flood of students that go to him and, and tell him that, that there's been some sudden death in the family and that they, can no, they can't be at class on that particular day. It just so happens to be during the week of finals, and it's always grandma that, that has died. And so if you have a grand, uh, grandchild in college, be careful, all right? <laughs> Now, why is that? We want to lie, cheat, and deceive to get what we want. Now, as he continued his research, he realized that does it, the little sins that we commit, the little things that we may fabricate or exaggerate, it really increases our capacity for greater and bigger sins later on. We don't think it's that big of a deal at the beginning, but really it desensitizes us along the way in the process. And, and so really it begins at the grocery line when we go to the line that says 10 items or less, when we know there's more in the cart than us, than that, right? How many of you, you've done that before? Oh, you're lying. Right, it proves my point. Come on. Or you're late for a meeting and say, well, I got caught in traffic. That really wasn't true. Or, or maybe you decide to board the plane a little bit earlier. And when the lady calls you out on it at the Dallas airport, she says, well, this isn't your group, sir. And you say, oh, well, I didn't know. <laughs> and so we think that there's no damage done along the way if nobody gets harmed. But the reality is, is it does something to our heart. It does something to our soul. It, it toughens it up. It, it desensitizes us. And this is why Paul says in another letter that liars, their minds have been seared with a hot iron. Here's another false identity that we believe goes like this. I am what I do. I am what I do. Now, this is when we think that we're nothing more than how much we're producing or contributing. The idol that whispers this lie to us is success, respect, honor, we find, when we find our identity here, we, we look for ways to use people. This may be why you choose to pay more attention to, to people who are very successful in their career. This idol tells us to, to value appearance of wealth over all things, while at the end of the day, never really being satisfied with what you have. This is where jealousy towards those who have more comes from. You see, the city of Corinth was a very affluent city full of successful people. The, their culture was very centered upon the appearance of success and, and wealth and having it together. But what Paul realized is that this mentality and motivation and desire was starting to split the church. You see, some of these Christians began filing lawsuits among one another. But Paul knew that this was nothing but idolatry. Take a look at how Paul confronted them earlier in chapter 6 of this letter. He says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. You see, these followers of Jesus were suing one another because they were listening to this little lie at the end of the day that went like this. You just need a little bit more money to have a safe retirement, to be comfortable. You just need a little bit more in your bank account so that you can afford to live in that neighborhood. And if they had to sue one another to get there, then they were in. But you see, this isn't the only way that this God shows up in our life. Sometimes in the church we think, I'm, as, I'm only as good as, as how much I serve, how much scripture I, I memorize, or, or God won't be proud of me unless I pray more, unless I learn to speak a certain language with him, or, or I have a quiet time every single day. And yet this can be pretty dangerous for us because it leads to this place of being entitled. You see, it is possible for us to do so much for God that we become proud of our accomplishments and we think that God owes us. 
several years ago, Steve Johnson was the wide receiver for the Buffalo Bills, and he dropped the game-winning pass against the Pittsburgh Steelers that would have advanced them closer to the Super Bowl. And he was so irate about it that he decided to take his frustration to Twitter. Check out what he wrote immediately following the game. He said this, I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me? You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this, ever. Thanks, though. Now, I don't share this with you to shame or embarrass Johnson for what he wrote. And, and I'm willing to bet that he later regretted using Twitter as a platform to express his frustration and some of the issues that he had with God at the time. But if we're all honest with ourselves and we looked inside, a lot of us don't think much different. I mean, maybe you've trained yourself to believe that if you work hard, attend church, and learn to pray a certain way, then, then God is going to have no choice but to bless you and to make sure that everything you do in life, you're always going to receive the game-winning play, but it doesn't always work out that way. And so could this be why you maybe tend to look down on others who aren't as outwardly obedient or committed as you are in their journey with Jesus? Or what does comparing yourself to others so that you feel better about yourself, really say about where you find your worth, where you find your identity and significance. And here's the third thing. I am what I have. I am what I have. Now, this tends to be the most obvious idol in our life because they are tangible. We can see them. We really believe that we are just one purchase away from happiness. I mean, once our living room looks like it belongs in a Pottery Barn catalog, or once you trade in your old car for a new one, or once you have that new set of irons, then you finally arrive. Then you will know what happiness is. And, and we think that we'll be so close when that happens, but in reality, we may have never been further. You see, we're so tempted to escape to these things when life is chaotic or painful. And by owning them, we feel that everything is going to be okay. It's our own little kingdom that we, that we control. And, and perhaps you maybe just write this idol off in your life as, as retail therapy. Psychologists and philosophers call this principle the, the hedonic adapt, they call this hedonic adaptation. Now, once we have something that we have been longing for and we have been desiring, we almost immediately crave whatever is next. Studies have shown that we are never really satisfied with what we have, whether that's a new car, a new house, a new family, or a new job, after we have it for a little while. Those things don't fulfill you like they used to because the excitement of owning them or them being in your life, it's died off. In verse 10 of our text, Paul mentioned a big mistake that the Israelites made while they were journeying through the wilderness. He said this, verse 10, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. You see, the Jews grumbled because they were more focused on what they didn't have in life rather than seeing all that God had done for them, seeing what they did have. One church leader, St. Augustine, once said it like this. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And so what if our infinite capacity to want more and to desire something greater really reflects God's infinite ability to give and to satisfy. Here's the last thing. Here's the last false identity that we tend to believe. It goes like this. I am what I experience. I am what I experience. Some of us measure our life based upon how many thrills we've lived through. Others of us will do whatever it takes to experience more adrenaline, sex, or some kind, of, some kind of adventure. Now, of all the idols, this is the one that the Corinthians could perhaps identify with most because this city was known for its prostitution. It was everywhere. 
The Greek goddess of love and romance, Aphrodite, had this massive temple in Corinth. And inside this temple, there were a thousand prostitutes. Now, this is where you found love and acceptance with no strings attached. That was the promise that was made. But evidently, this church really struggled to let go of this because they had been trained so much. And it was so deep inside them that they believed that they were only as good. They were only as good as the amount of one night stands that they could brag about to their friends. Now, last time I checked, Evansville, we don't have a prostitution temple. But I know many of you ladies who starve yourself for the sake of looking prettier and feeling better about what you see in the mirror. I've never met a mom or dad who literally gave their child and sacrificed him or her up on an altar to some god. But... I've met plenty of parents who who have been willing to give up precious time with their kids so that they can climb the corporate ladder. I don't know what you struggle with. I can't name the exact source of your desires, but I do know, I do know that the cross, it tells us something better and it provides something greater. And so if we're not what others say about us, and if we're not what we own, if, if we're not what we experience, if we're not what we do, then, then you might be asking, well, well, who am I? I mean, where does my identity come from? If, if, that's what the, if that's what all these false idols say about us, then what does the one true God say about who I am? Well, how about this? I am who I am says I am. What in the world is that about? He really is crazy. <laughs> I am who I am says that I am. You see, one of the first titles that God gave for himself was when he first appeared to Moses, when he asked Moses to lead his people out of slavery. And he appeared in the form of a burning bush, which was kind of weird. And so Moses was like, who who are you? What's going on here? And God referred to himself in that moment, is it? I am who I am. I am the great I am. And basically in that moment, God was telling Moses, look, I, I am everything. I am all that you need. I am all that you want. I've always existed and I always will be. I I control everything. I am sovereign. I I am who I am. I I am everything. And so for those of us who have made a decision to follow Jesus, we've trusted in Christ. The great I am says that you are his child. That you are his son. The Lord says that you are his daughter. You are precious. and, And that is where our identity comes from. And so if that is what the great I am says, then that also means that there are some I am nots that can go along with it. That means that if all followers of Jesus, we we are not what people say about us. I am not what I own. I am not what I experience. I am not what I do. No, I am who I am says that I am. And so what we're gonna do right now is we're gonna have a moment of of communion. And and basically this is our moment that we do every single week where we remind ourselves what it all goes back to. And in just a few moments, some trays are gonna be passed. And and on on those trays, you'll find two little cups stacked together. And inside one of the cups, there's a little piece of bread that represents Jesus' body that was sacrificed, beaten, tortured, and and abused so that we could be free. And and then there's a cup of juice, which represents his blood that that was poured out and shed on our behalf so that we could find forgiveness. Now, why do we do this? Why why is it so important that we take communion like this every single week? Well, I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded who I am. Because there's so many mixed signals and messages out in the world today in my identity, gets 
tossed around. I'm confused about who I am at times. And, and yet this is the moment we can remind ourselves that we are what Jesus has done for us. We aren't what has been done to us. We aren't maybe what we have done in the past. We are what Christ has done. I am who I am says that I am. And so I wanna invite you to take communion here in the next few moments. If you're serving communion, you may go ahead and come down front and begin passing the trays. I'm gonna pray for us and then uh, uh, we'll be out of here in, in a few moments, all right? Let's pray. God, I gotta be honest, it's really easy for me to stand up here and say I am who I am says that I am and, and and it's something else to live this out. I'm battling it right now as I talk. So would you remind us that we are not what's been done to us? We aren't what we have done. We aren't what others say about us. We aren't as good as our, our last sale, our last report, our last test, whatever that is. But we are what you've done on our behalf, Jesus. I thank you that it is finished. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.